My name is Tian Yushe. I'm a fourth year medical student at the New York Institute of Technology, and you're listening to Do or Do Not. Welcome to our 12th episode. Today we have Dr. Tara Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman specializes in geriatric and palliative medicine. She graduated from NYITCOM in 2001 and completed both her residency and fellowship at North Shore Manhattan. Dr. Lieberman is an assistant professor at the Zucker School of Medicine and currently serves as the Associate Chief of Geriatric and Palliative Medicine, overseeing both inpatient and outpatient clinical services. Dr. Lieberman has won multiple awards for her dedication to her field and compassion with patients, providing an approach that improves quality of life for them and their families when facing problems associated with life-threatening illness through prevention and relief of suffering. We hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Tara, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. All right, Tara, so let's start with, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what your day looked like today and what type of patients you were seeing. So my day um, started with interdisciplinary team rounds, which means that I work with not just physicians, but nurses, nurse practitioners, social workers, We review the cases that we've been currently seeing and those that we're about to see in the hospital. And then we round as a team to see the patients that are admitted to our hospital. Some of them are very old with a lot of advanced illness, and some of them are very young with a lot of comorbidities and symptom burden that we are asked to help support and manage. So It's a long day, draining emotionally, physically, especially being in uh, COVID gear all day long in the hospital, but very rewarding because a lot of times we get a lot of patients, you know, symptom-free and good conversations with families about what's been going on with their loved ones and how we can help them best. Yeah, so we're going to start, I guess, talking about palliative care. And for me, it's amazing what palliative care has added to medicine. But I think if I was a medical student, I would be thinking, listen, I went into medicine to help people and to save lives and to make people better. If you were talking to a medical student and they were asking you, why would you go into palliative care and what does that do for patients and why would you want to do that? What would you tell them? So I tell them that I think I actually do a lot of helping and it's not about patients dying, it's about patients living. And a lot of our patients don't die. We're lucky enough to have a you know good support with our colleagues where we see patients earlier on in their diseases with COPD and heart failure and cancer. And so we get to partner along with our colleagues about symptom management, goals of care, being able to live a best quality of care, being able to have their goals and wishes spoken about early on in their disease and be able to follow throughout their trajectory. I think this is a totally different way of approaching chronic illnesses than we ever did before. It was just treat them and release them and then follow them up when they had an acute exacerbation. I think medicine has evolved to understand that that's just not how we can care for patients by themselves. It can't be in a silo. It has to be around how the patient and their family is dealing with the illness and how that affects them medically, physically, socially, spiritually, and financially. The encompassing overarching palliative care to help the primary care team take care of somebody, I think just adds an extra layer of support. And it's very fulfilling to know that patients and families get what their goals are and what their wishes are from the very beginning until the end. 
That's amazing. Yeah. And I, again, I think people don't appreciate this. And I think, you know, we kind of overlap sometimes and, and I think I'm really bad at it. And I'm always appreciative when we work together just to give the listeners an example. So feeding tube, sometimes a patient's not eating and they'll call me, put in a feeding tube. And I always say, and maybe this is not the right answer from my perspective, but I always say I'm kind of like a plumber. I don't feel like it's my job to guide them as to whether or not they should have a feeding tube. But sometimes I'll actually recommend that a palliative care consult be called because maybe that's not appropriate. And then when you come, who do you speak to? How do you approach those things? How do you help those people make a decision? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you need to know the medicine. And I think that's the interesting part about palliative care is that you have to really have good medical background to understand what the underlying disease is that's causing that person not to be able to swallow or eat. Because there are times when I'm the first person to say, put a feeding tube in. This person has a head and neck cancer. They need a feeding tube because they're not going to get through their treatment. They're going to have a terrible quality of life. And this is what we've shown in studies that extends and improves their life with a feeding tube. Same thing with like an ALS patient. But, you know, the other part of it is when we know it's a patient with end-stage dementia, we know that, you know, it hasn't improved quantity or quality of life through many, many years of research. And so the medical part is really important to understand. And then to just mirror the medicine with the goals of the patient and their family to understand what does that mean to put a feeding tube in with your disease and what that trajectory is going to look like. And that's hard. I mean, how do you care for a feeding tube? Who's going to be managing that feeding tube? How are you going to live with that feeding tube? Is this going to extend my life, improve my quality, make it worse? You know, so those are really complex conversations that are not easy. And it's not your fault for not wanting to do that because it could take hours. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for making me feel better because yeah, that's not my skill set. And, and that's the point of why it's important to have a person who has the skill set to be able to do risk benefit and have the time. Your goal is to do the procedure and, and move on and make sure it's safe for that person at the time you're doing it. And the reality of it is you're not going to take the time to speak to the family or talk to who's going to care for them. Are they going to be at home? Are they going to be in a nursing home? Are they going to be in an assisted living? I mean, these are really complex and that's why we use a multidisciplinary team because, you know, I don't know all this stuff. The social worker knows better sometimes. And so that's why I have to lean on my colleagues to understand what that means. Just in the same sense as sometimes I have to lean on my chaplains because it might be a religious issue about, you know, should I have, an, you know, some kind of medicine or some kind of procedure that because of my religion. And that's hard. That's really hard. Yeah, so it's holistic. You would say it's kind of like a holistic approach, right? You're you're taking all of these pieces and putting them together to help the family and the patient make a decision about the direction of their care. Correct. It's a you know multidisciplinary holistic approach to make sure that the goals are aligned and that the procedures are happening are correct. And hopefully we get it right. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. <laughs> I'm sure you always get it right. I have no doubt. So let me ask you kind of a two-part question. First of all, how the heck did you decide that this is what you wanted to do, number one? And then number two, I speak to uh, residents sometimes and I ask them what they're, you know, what are you going to do next year? And they're like with a smile say, I'm, I'm going to do a palliative care fellowship. So obviously you're influencing those people. So my question is, number one, again, how did you decide to do this? And number two, what do you look for when you interview fellows that are interested in palliative care? 
So I fell into palliative care, actually. It did not exist when we were residents or even fellows. I did my residency in internal medicine and then became a geriatric fellow because my heart and soul was always about taking care of a aging population and understanding they were frail and that medicine for aging population was very gray and everybody wanted to be black and white. And I just didn't like that feeling. And my goal was to be a primary care doctor and be in the community and care for patients, you know, young, but mostly an older population. And, you know, my daughter came and I realized that a private practice was really difficult to be a mom and be um, in a private practice for the first year. And I was lucky enough to be asked to be a medical director for hospice. And at the time, they had just started this fellowship in palliative medicine, which underscored through hospice. And so I was one of the first medical directors that taught the palliative care fellows about probably 15 years ago. You're not that old. I can't believe that. (laughs) I remember thinking to myself, like, I have the skill set, but I need to learn more about this and sort of taught myself palliative medicine and had became grandfathered and that board certified. You know, really realized that hospice was a wonderful profession for me. But after my daughter grew up and went to school, I really wanted to go back into internal medicine and geriatrics and teach residents and medical students about the fact that medicine is gray and that there are conversations that need to be happened about what we're going to be doing for patients and their families. And so I was lucky enough to come back to the health system that I'm in and was asked to be part of the residency program and fellowship program to teach and and work. And so we've grown our fellowship. We have six fellows a year in palliative care and eight fellows in geriatrics. And, you know, it used to not be sexy, but now it's become quite popular. And the reason I think it is is because there's so many procedures and so much stuff that we can do to patients and residents realize like I feel uncomfortable doing this sometimes and I'd prefer to take the time to sort of talk to my patients and their families about is this something you really want to do what is really your goal and you know when they round with us they realize it's very fulfilling you know we have a very high satisfactory in our profession in the sense that you know, we really do what's usually aligned with what they want and the families want and usually get outcomes that are satisfying for families and, and their loved ones. And the best part is that I love to be thanked. You know, it's very rare that you have a conversation about somebody who's really sick and to tell them that they're really sick. And at the end, someone to say, thank you for letting me know that. That's that's just when I have happens to me and my residents, they just feel like, this is what I want. I don't want people to be angry at me and yell at me. Yeah. Yeah. That's super nice. Nobody says thank you when I put a peg in them. There's a, I would say that's <laughs> a zero. That's a zero. So yeah. So I, I can totally see how, you know, you're really doing a service for the patient and the families appreciate that you're actually talking to them and explaining to them. And again, maybe telling them that they don't have to do everything and they have a choice, right? right? So as far as when you're looking at fellows, Are there certain attributes that you look at when you interview fellows? Like, what are you looking for in a fellow? I think that obviously, like I said before, it's important to have a good background in your your medical skills and understanding the various diseases because you really in this profession are going to learn, you know, be talking about surgical procedures that may or may not be wanted. You're going to be looking at cancer therapies. You're going to be looking at heart failure, COPD, you know, so somebody who has a good medical background, but also is compassionate and 
calm, willing to listen and to think outside the box and to be okay with gray and being uncomfortable in situations that are not usually comfortable. So I think that's what we look for when we're looking for fellows. That's definitely a different skill set. And and those things are all valuable and amazing. I think that's amazing. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and ask you, where did you go to college? And when did you decide that you wanted to be a doctor? I went to Binghamton University, a state school. And I actually was a pharmacy technician in high school. I used to help the patients and explain to them what their medications were. I was very intrigued about, you know, what the medications were, why were they being given. My father was a pharmacist. I knew I didn't want to be a pharmacist because I couldn't stand there all day long. I had to. <laughs> right. Okay, not fun, right? Father. Not fun for you. No, no, not for me. He's like, you should go into medicine because you're going to be utilizing some of these skill sets. And I said, that seems like a great idea. And I really enjoyed the medications and medications, how they affected patients, especially the aging population, how complex it was to have so many different medications to take every day that I figured this is something I'm really interested in and I really wanted to pursue. And that's why I ended up in medicine and, and probably geriatrics as well. So, so you went to Binghamton and you were pre-med in Binghamton, is that right? I was psychobiology. That sounds complicated. Is that like, a, did a lot of pre-meds do that? Were you just really interested in that? I really liked the psychology part of medicine. In fact, at some point I thought I might have been a therapist. I would have been a really bad therapist. I don't agree with that. I, I think you would have been great, but doctor's good too, so. So that was uh, why I did psychobiology. I was open, keeping my options open to decide what I wanted to do. Okay, and then... When did you find out about osteopathic school and how did you end up going to DO school? So my brother applied to medical school. He's seven years older than me. During high school, he did not get into allopathic medical school first year and he took the year off. And actually it was the best year for me, I think for him too, because he actually came home and we were both older and could actually hang out with each other. He realized there was another opportunity out there called osteopathic school. And so he reapplied and ended up at NICOM. And I went through the process with him. It went to NICOM to see the school and actually really fell in love with the idea actually of osteopathic school. I may be the only person who only applied to osteopathic school. I did not apply to allopathic school at all. That was where I wanted to go because of my brother. That's, that's great. That's, and it says, I'm sure your brother is very proud of that fact also. That's amazing that he influenced you to the point that you made your career decision based on the fact that I guess you looked up to him and you thought he was making good choices. Yep. He's an internist now. He's very successful in private practice and uh, did, he had a great experience in osteopathic school and got to the residence that he wanted to do and learned how to be a more of a holistic physician, I think. And so I think that is why I was interested in osteopathic school. That's great. So now you went to NICOM. Did you tell me what you thought of NICOM? Tell me what your experiences were like. I had a blast in medical school, I have to say. That's interesting. I don't think I've heard anyone say that so far, but. 
you know, you work so hard in high school and college to get to be where you want to be. And I was finally there. So I was so excited to actually be in medical school and be with people who were wanting to do the same thing that I wanted to do. So actually, I found my the people around me that were interested. I mean, in college, people wanted to go out and hang out and drink and party. And they were taking tests that weren't as meaningful because they didn't have to get into a school. Finally, I got to medical school and everybody had the same goal, the same interest. They were all excited about studying and working hard, but also having fun at the same time. So I actually really had a blast. I was in New York. We did a lot of fun things. And, you know, I met my husband there. So all good. That's <laughs> good perfect. We had a, perfect. A, a big uh, group of friends that we're still very close with today. So now you met your husband while you were in medical school. Did you get married while you were in medical school also? I graduated on a Saturday. I got married the Sunday after. Holy shnikes. That's fast, right? Yeah. You know, when they say all the things that you shouldn't do, you know, like those big stressors in life, get married, change jobs, move. I did all of that within like a few weeks. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, It sounds sounds like it's good that, you know, maybe you did some psychobiology because you knew how to deal with that stuff from your class or something, right? Correct. Correct. So did you and your husband, did you do a couples match or how did you pick your residency? Was it kind of a group decision? Was that hard trying to figure out how you could stay together and do residency? How did that work out? We did not do a couples match, but we live in a metropolitan area where there was a lot of opportunity for us to be in the fields that we were going to be in. So we just wanted to make sure that we were within the area. So he actually signed outside the match. And so I knew that he was going to be at a certain place. So it was easy for me to rank that one as my number one choice and then just followed suit with places in the area so that we could be close by. So that everything worked out perfectly and you started your residency, you were at Northwell in Manhasset. How was your experience? Were there other DOs in your class and how was your experience being a DO there? Um, So we were the first class that was the smallest DO class in a while. There were five of us. The class before us was 10, but we were actually well regarded and integrated. There was no in my opinion, feeling of favoritism from an MD to a DO at all. We worked closely. I do think that the DOs had a little bit more experience in procedures. A lot of my allopathic friends had done a lot of shadowing and not a lot of hands-on. So I think I was a little bit better with lines and writing notes and being able to to get the day-to-day stuff. The medicine, we were all taught. But I think that in the first year, that's a hard thing to overcome. And a lot of us DOs didn't have to overcome that because we'd worked so hard in our um, our medical student years that we had been doing procedures and writing notes and that stuff came easy to me and I didn't have to really worry about that. So that was a leg up, I think. You know, I didn't apply to a very competitive fellowship program, so I didn't have the experience that a lot of my colleagues did. I think if they were DOs, they did have a little bit harder of a time and they needed to show themselves and do research in order to stand out amongst their colleagues. For me, geriatrics really wasn't, as we said before, sexy, and um, you weren't a foreign grad. They were excited to have you, so I was lucky in that sense. Right, but again, it's so interesting to me how everything's like cyclic. 
you know, and I spoke to an anesthesiologist last month. We were having this dialogue that when I was going through anesthesia was not competitive. And then when this person was going through anesthesia was super competitive. And I think, again, just to you're being modest, as far as I'm concerned, you know, when I speak to residents, they're all really excited about geriatrics and palliative care. And I think things are definitely cycling. Is, is that is that true? Yeah. I mean, I think that we are now becoming actually kind of a little bit competitive. This year, we had to turn people away, which was exciting. I think that population's getting older. They're recognizing that they need skill sets to take care of this patient population. And then there's a lot more advanced illnesses that are complex, and they're finding it's difficult to do this on a day-to-day basis. And they enjoy it. So I think it's becoming more popular. It's exciting to see. That's, That's great. That's really cool. I think it's definitely necessary. Tara, let me ask you, I know that you told me you, you have, I believe, an academic position at Zucker, and yeah. is it, you help interview for that medical school? Yeah, so I'm an associate professor. I was named associate professor this year. That was very exciting for me. I never thought I'd ever do any research in my lifetime, but actually have started to enjoy it. So that's exciting. I do interview for the fellowship and the residency. And actually for a few years, I haven't done it in the last two years, but I was interviewing for the medical school, um, which I always thought was fun because, you know, I'm a DO interviewing for an allopathic medical school. And I think that just shows how incorporating the Hofstra Medical School is and that they really embrace the differences and are interested in seeing different types of uh, applicants. So it was really exciting to do that. It's really cool. And obviously very flattering to you that they respect you as a physician. So you also mentioned that you have a daughter. At what point during your career did you have your daughter? And how was that? Like now you're not only doing medicine, but you're also raising a child. I mean, how was that experience? So I was, uh, I got pregnant during my fellowship and year. And unfortunately, I was placed on bed rest for four months. So it did change my uh, trajectory of my career. So that was difficult in the sense of concerned about your child. And then also in the same, I'm concerned about finishing my fellowship and getting a job off cycle. And so all those things were really difficult. Obviously, thankfully, she was healthy and well, and that did delay my fellowship four months. But I was lucky enough to join a wonderful private practice. We were, my husband and I, we did shifts. I, I worked days, he worked nights. And we did that for the first 10 years of my daughter's life. That I think put about 50 pounds on my husband. Oh, and wow. Poor <laughs> um, husband. He's getting beat up. <laughs> yeah. I was probably very cranky because I did not sleep at all. My child did not sleep for the first like two years of her life either. So uh, we struggled, but you know, she's amazing. She uh, is 15 now and very independent. I think from being a child of two physicians, she's learned to maneuver through the world. They say an only child is very spoiled. I would I would say she's not. I actually think she's very thoughtful about her peers and, you know, how she can help others. So it's been great, actually. Very lucky. That's amazing. Yeah, it's great, Tara. Now, if you could go back and change anything, is there anything specific that you think you would have done differently professionally or having your family, you know, timing, things like this? Or would you have done everything exactly the same? I think I would have done everything exactly the same. I have no regrets. I enjoyed every minute of it, (laughs) even the bad times. (laughs) Most of them, right? Most Most of them. them. My last question is, can you think of maybe one 
it doesn't have to be one, but can you think of any advice that you were given from a mentor, whether it was in college, in medical school, during your residency or fellowship that really sticks with you that you maybe pass on to your fellows when you teach them that maybe you could pass on to our listeners that you think would help them even in life or in medicine or anything? What I would say is that the most important thing is act like the way you expect your colleagues to act. And the other thing I would say is be very nice to the nurses. <laughs> That's great. That was the first thing my brother said to me on my first day of residency. That is super good advice. Be that is the best nice advice. to the nurses. That is the best advice. I remember... I. I'm always nice, of course, but maybe I wasn't super nice to a nurse. And then at three o'clock in the morning, she called me to ask me if potassium of 4.0, which is obviously completely normal, needed to be supplemented. So, sure. so that was my, I didn't have your brother. I learned the lesson the hard way, but you always have to be nice to the nurses because they're your friends, right? Yep. 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 Totally. Awesome advice. Tara, again, thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at do or do not podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to do or do not podcast.